Morning, everybody. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible as you sit down, please, and turn to page 995 if you're in one of our Bibles uh, to Timothy. We've been working our way through it. We're not going to quite get to the end before Christmas, but we'll pick it up at the start of January. I'm going to pray. If we've not met, by the way, my name is Paul. I'm the minister here. It's a, a joy to welcome you. Hope you're able to uh, come back this evening for our carol service, either at 5 or at 7.30, and to bring lots of friends with you. But let me pray as we turn to 2 Timothy now. We've thought that you are the, the mighty God whose purposes cannot be thwarted all morning, our Father, and we pray for your purposes in our life to be advanced now, therefore. Please work in us by your Spirit. Keep writing the truths of your word on our heart. And please keep shaping our church family that we might live in the light of what you say. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Second half, then, of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. I'll start at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands... Bearing the seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." might flip back to the start and keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet, as there usually is. And you'll be spotting that we've come to the halfway point in this great letter of 2 Timothy. I hope we're beginning to get a feel as a church family, if you've been with us, for the heart of this great letter. Paul has been like a father to Timothy for many years, uh, mentoring him as a 
as a child and as a man of God, as a servant of Christ. They've labored side by side in the work of the gospel. But now Paul knows that his own days are numbered, and in the light of his own approaching death, he's writing to encourage Timothy to keep going in the hard work of serving Jesus, even in the face of these two dangers of a world that will persecute him and a church that is drifting from the truth. So Timothy's at a crossroads. I've said in in many senses, we all are every day. Paul had done his bit. He'd run the race. He'd finished it. Timothy had started well, but how would he finish? And the same question for us. And the command in chapter 1, verse 14, we've suggested summarizes the whole letter, really. Timothy, in the power of the Holy Spirit, guard the deposit of the gospel that God has entrusted to you. And to that end, uh, Paul has been painting a a definitive picture of the, the kind of man the Christian leader is meant to be and of the kind of ministry he's meant to engage in. I'm aware that that can feel a bit remote from some of us. So I put in that little table on the sheet um, three big ways that the letter applies to us today. And the the first line of application there is pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you are a, a church leader visiting this morning or listening in, if you're an elder like Timothy, if you're engaged in full-time paid gospel work of one kind or another, if you hope to be one day, then the direct charge to us is to live by the same standards and labor in the same work that Paul was passing on to Timothy. But the the application doesn't stop there. The, The last few words of the letter we've said are written in the plural, grace be with you. The footnote says grace be with you all. And that's even because even though the letter was written to Timothy, Paul wanted it to be read by the whole church because It's not just church leaders, it turns out, but every Christian and every church that needs to understand the pattern and the priorities of faithful gospel ministry. Here's just one tiny reason why. It amazes me, maybe it does you, how many genuine Christians who really love the Lord end up spending years and years of their life in a church that doesn't uh, have the kind of ministry that Paul is outlining here. Ministry that has a form of godliness, as Paul would say it, but denies its power. Shouldn't happen, but it happens so regularly. And to Timothy, one of the reasons it's here is to help all of us to value the things that really matter in the life and ministry of a church, not just for the times we need to pick a new church, but so that we can encourage and pray that our own local church will be the kind of place that God wants it to be. It sounds so obvious, but congregations, I'm thankful I don't get this here, but congregations often put huge pressure on their ministers to give their time and energy to things other than the priorities of 2 Timothy but the letter is here to keep us right. But then notice that third line of application on the sheet, because as we learn about the the capital M ministry that the church leader is meant to do, the kind of person that they're meant to be, so too we get a picture of the kind of person that we're all meant to be and the kind of ministry, lowercase m, that we're all called to engage in. So you don't just 
pray for someone else to be like this and do this, but we ask God to help all of us to have a life that matches up to these standards and to engage in this work. So three main lines of application. Hope it doesn't feel too academic to go over them. Hope it clarifies our thoughts for when we come to read these uh, pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus in the future. And it'll help us to, to bear them in mind today as we continue to uncover more of the, the definitive portrait of the way that things should be that Paul is giving us in the life and work of the man of God. So we've got three images to consider, and the first, to reassure you, is by far the longest. So first then, the unashamed workman in the first paragraph. And uh, the focus of the letter shifts a bit at, at verse 14. So far we've been concentrating on the minister's interactions largely with the world. Now the focus turns to Timothy's responsibilities in the area of false teaching. So as I read um, verses 14 to 19 again, try and pick out the difference just for yourself between the good and the bad teacher. So verse 14, remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins your, the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I don't know if um, you've ever got home from church one day and someone's asked you, how was the sermon? And uh, you're then forced to evaluate what you've heard. Maybe you had to give it a mark out of 10 on one occasion or something on a five-star rating. How would you, how do you go about evaluating even this sermon? How would you go about deciding whether it was good or bad? It's very easy, isn't it, to focus on whether you, you like the preacher as a person uh, or whether they're from the same kind of background as you, so you find a, a natural rapport, whether you find them easy to listen to, kind of how jargony some of their languages, you might decide according to how funny you think they are, which, uh, in which case I'm in trouble, or how good their stories are, uh, again, how emotionally engaging you find them as a person. Any preacher's going to want to convey their message well. There's going to be no extra prizes in heaven for the most boring uh, among us. But what's the key to it? What's the key test for how you gauge? I think you'll find it there in verse 15. Has the person correctly handled the word of truth or have they swerved from it? Only if they've correctly handled the word of truth, we're told, will that person have no need to be ashamed when they present themselves before God on the last day. If they haven't correctly handled the word of truth, there is a source of shame. Um, to help us reflect on this a bit more, I thought I'd share with you um, 
the highlights, just the edited highlights of an essay um, by 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle I read in which he talks about some of the different ways that it's possible for a preacher to, quote, spoil the message of the gospel. Uh, language is a bit quaint, but it, it's worth it. So Ryle said, the preacher can get it wrong, can spoil the message of the gospel by substitution. By which he means, that's when a preacher draws your eyes away from Christ and puts your eyes, puts in his place something else as the primary object of faith. Uh, it could be the church, could be the confessional, could be baptism, could be the Lord's Supper, but something takes the place of Jesus. Or he said we can spoil it by addition. It's where you put something else alongside Jesus as the grand object of faith, like obedience or Mary, or, and Ryle says at that point, well, your religion ceases to be properly Christian if it's Jesus plus something else. Interposition, he goes for next, which is a slightly odd word, isn't it? But that means if we put something else between Christ and the eye of the soul, and we say that Christ can only be approached through one particular leader, or through a particular kind of ritual, or in the context of a, one specific institution, then as Ryle says, the mischief is done at that moment. Or disproportion. So if you end up attaching an exaggerated importance to a secondary part of Christianity, and thereby you hide the priority of the first things, Ryle says the gospel is lost. His last one is confusion, which says, uh, if we overcomplicate things with obscure statements in such a way that our message is unintelligible, then we've spoiled the gospel. So substitution, addition, interposition, disproportion, confusion. I'm wanting to add subtraction to the list. Uh, you, you leave out key truths of the gospel, key commands that Jesus lays on people, and it's game over. Now, you could end up preaching to thousands who love you. You could end up with a YouTube channel that's kind of got millions and millions of views. But if you've done any of that, you won't be a faithful workman, and God will not approve. And Paul's saying, Timothy, do your best. Not asking him to do any more than his best, but not asking him to do any less than his best either. Don't cut corners, no half measures. Don't just blag your way through and think I've got a couple of stories and that'll be enough. But give it your all to present yourself as an unashamed workman. Uh, that faithful ministry explicitly here stands in contrast to a couple of other things that were commonplace in Ephesus. You've got silly quarrels on the one hand and explicit lies on the other. The, the quarrels are there in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Charge the whole congregation not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Um, what often happens when God's word is being denied uh, in a particular context, in a denomination or whatever, is that those who still care about his truth can get sucked into lots of arguments that generate more heat than light. Um, we all know uh, from other walks of life the difference between a, a discussion 
in which two people who are, are genuinely for one another but think differently to each other try and help each other to get to the, the bottom of something and to learn and to grow. That's one kind. And we know the difference between that and an argument in which two proud people dig their heels in and try to justify what they think and to score points against each other. And Paul is wanting Timothy to guard against that kind of critical, competitive spirit in himself and in the church. Charge people, he says. They might think that they're contending for the faith when they put out their YouTube videos deriding others. But their efforts are of, he says, no value at all. They only succeed in ruining their hearers. So that's one danger. It's not exclusively a danger for young men in churches like ours that take the message of the Bible seriously, but it is always a particular danger in churches like ours. And we want to hope and pray that there will be not even a hint of it among us here. Uh, the, the second danger, though, is the explicit false teacher. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. As I hinted, as I read it in my intonation, the, the key phrase is swerved from the truth. Because once upon a time, it looked like Hymenaeus and Philetus were faithful gospel workers. They, were, they looked on track for the truth, if I put it like that. But now they've swerved. They've left the truth behind. And they're saying that the resurrection has already happened. That's not the resurrection of Jesus. That has already happened. It's talking about the general resurrection of all believers at the end of time. And for some reason, these guys were saying that it had happened already. Probably, therefore, that, that we should expect to be experiencing now in our spirits, if not in our bodies, all of the blessings of heaven. That's probably where they went with it. We don't know exactly. It seems likely you put one and two Timothy together that they were telling people they could escape the trials of life and enjoy greater blessing from God if only they obeyed certain food laws and uh, denied their body any kind of physical pleasure. But wherever they went with it, the effect uh, is clear. Because the, the, the word of truth and of grace brings life and righteousness to those who believe. But the teaching, we're told, of these guys is like gangrene. It, it, it leads people into deeper ungodliness and upsets the faith of some. And once again, therefore, God's word charges us to remember that departing from his truth is deadly. It might be more appealing to a generation in society, but it kills people. It doesn't bring life. Hence, Timothy, do your best to be an approved workman. I think it is telling that, that Paul felt the need to remind Timothy of this. He, he wouldn't take for granted that even someone as talented, trusted, well-trained as Timothy was gonna last the course. 
And honestly, the longer I go on in ministry, the more I see why. I think of friends uh, in ministry faithfully slogging away, trying to teach God's Word, despite all of their efforts. The, the numbers in their churches are shrinking, the, the finances in their church are shrinking, and there are questions as to whether the church will even be able to stay open. And yet, just down the road, someone who's left the truth behind can have a congregation that's bursting at the seams. And the internal pressure that these guys face is incredible. They, they know the truth, but they want to preach to people, not pews. So, of course, there's a bit of them that wants to look like they're a success in ministry. What would it say of them if the church closed under their watch? And so there's temptation to do something different, to change up the message, to try and make it a bit more appealing to people, to engage in a different kind of ministry is huge. Uh, and the members of their churches no doubt feel the same challenge. Are we missing out by being here? Wouldn't it be, would we maybe not have more blessings somewhere else? And so Paul says, Timothy, you may be in a minority of one, but keep doing your best. And remember that God's firm foundation stands. Verse 19, the Lord knows those who are his. Uh, they're quotations from Numbers 26. They're meant to reassure Timothy. Timothy, everyone else in Ephesus might swerve from the truth. You might worry, you might be tempted. But God is sovereign. God knows his own. God's going to build his church. So you keep doing your best to be an approved workman and leave everything else to God himself. It's the first element of today's portrait. I said it was the longest. But as he continues, Paul tells Timothy to aspire also to be an honorable vessel. Let's read from verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Uh, the analogy is simple in, enough, isn't it? So you might have um, one brush at home that you use for your hair. I don't really need one these days, sadly, but you might have a brush that you use for your hair and then a different sort of brush that you use for the toilet. And the golden rule, wouldn't it be, is don't mix them up and use the wrong one for the wrong thing. The, you want to keep the good things free from contamination. So Timothy, so Christian person, here's the question for you today, every day. Do you want to be useful to your master, Jesus Christ? Do you want to be ready to do good works for him? Then be sure to cleanse yourself thoroughly and to get rid of every last bit of dross from your life. One commentator summary. 
if the promise of being useful is to be inherited, then the condition of cleansing must first be fulfilled. In practice here, that means both fleeing and pursuing. Uh, Well, they flee from a combination, it seems, of the false teaching itself and the ungodly living of the false teachers. So you need to purge their falsehood from our minds and their wickedness from our hearts and lives. Uh, People tend to latch onto that phrase, youthful desires, in verse 22 and presume that Paul's just talking about lust. Uh, I think he is, but his point's broader than that. As the second half of the verse suggests, he wants Timothy to flee from everything that gets in the way of righteousness. Anything in your life that gets in the way of faith, anything that gets in the way of love and of peace, he wants you to run a million miles from it. This then is the the point for us to double underline that the kind of person that Timothy is matters every bit as much as the message that he was to proclaim. Those two things are always woven together all the way through the the New Testament, key tests of any ministry uh, and the key ambitions of of any minister. Am I teaching? Am I living the truth? Uh, I doubt you'll be surprised to know that I find that deeply challenging. Uh, it's, it's one thing to work hard at your desk to make sure that I try to do my best to teach the truth of God's word. But am I as determined when I'm away from my desk to make sure that my life is a clear example of righteousness, faith, love, and peace? And you need to ask that question of me and of our elders, and you need to ask that question of yourself. Because all of us should strive to live as examples to the believers around us and to those who are younger in the faith. And I'm sure, like me, you'll find that to be a daily battle. I'm sure, like me, you'll you'll find that there are times when you get lazy in that battle, that you're not always as vigilant as you should be. It's no surprise then that the verbs in verse 22 are, are talking about ongoing effort something, and vigilance, something to keep on doing. So Timothy, he's saying flee and go on fleeing from in the same way that you would run and keep running from someone who was trying to attack you. You wouldn't take an occasional step every now and then when you felt particularly convicted. You would flee and go on fleeing and then pursue and keep on chasing after these other things in the way that a predator chases after their prey. Because being right about doctrine and truth is no more important than living right. Our godliness matters as much as our truthfulness. What do you make of those things that he tells him to pursue. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Everyone who truly calls on the Lord from the heart will want to pursue those things. You might think now of one that you want to ask the Lord to help you to grow in and to chase after this week, 
over Christmas, over the next year. I hope you agree with me that the privilege being set before us in verse 21 is indescribably great. Loads of people dream of doing something significant with their life. They devote themselves to trying to find the cure of a deadly disease or to set up a company or to try and make the world a better place or something. There is only one work that can transform someone's eternity. And God says, you can be a part of it. You can be useful. You can be useful to your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can play a part, if you've trusted in him, in the good work of helping people come to know him and go on living for him. You can be a, a useful instrument in God's hands, useful to him. You might think you've got nothing to offer, if you call on Jesus from a pure heart, he can use you. Isn't that wonderful? But if the promise is to be inherited, then the condition must be fulfilled. And so, Timothy, you can't do it on your own. But God the Holy Spirit lives within you. And God's will is that you be sanctified. And he promises that he will do it. And he is faithful. So cleanse yourself in his strength and pursue a life of love and righteousness and peace. Finally, um, this morning briefly, the gentle servant, just in outline, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The emphasis is, is still on Timothy's manner. Once again, avoid pointless speculation and argument. Um, I think he has to repeat it. You know, whenever someone opposes a ministry... It is definitely tempting for the one on the receiving end to go into battle mode, to assume the absolute worst of your opponents, to resent them personally, and to enter into empty arguments, to try and pick holes in them and to vindicate yourself. And Paul says that's not the way of the, the gentle servant of the Lord. You'll just want to be kind to everyone, always. And when people oppose him and when people in the congregation get sucked into the crossfire, he's not going to take it personally. He's just going to keep trying to love people and teach the truth in as gentle a way as he can because the Lord knows those who are his. And as the gentle servant keeps gently instructing, then God will use that instruction if it's his will to rescue people from the devil's web of lies and to bring them back to God in true repentance of heart. Um, there's more to say, but our time is gone. Let me take a step back quickly as we close and remind us of some of the key features of the true servant of God that we've met already in the letter. So this pen portrait of faithfulness we've been thinking about. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, that the faithful minister is a pyromaniac, one who fans into flames the teaching gifts that God has given to him. 
in 114, a guardian of the truth of the gospel. From 2.3, a soldier who suffers in service of Jesus, an athlete who does God's work God's way, and a farmer who works hard for God. But now today, three more elements to the profile. An unashamed workman who rightly handles the word of truth. An honorable and useful vessel who lives out what he teaches. And finally, so far, a gentle servant who loves even his opponents. And where we started, if you're in any kind of Christian leadership, that's the person you need to be. And if you're not, that's the sort of ministry you need to sit under and pray for and support and demand. And for all of us, it's the ministry we need to imitate. Let's pray. Father, it's impossible for us to read these words and not be challenged, but it is our great longing to be useful to you. We want to be ready for every good work that you put before us. And so we pray that you would help us to avoid silly arguments about things or fruitless arguments. We pray that you would help us to avoid passions and anything that will get in the way of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. May we together as a church family grow in those virtues, even in the, the coming days. And we pray for the ministry here for as many decades as you, as this church remains and until the Lord Jesus comes again. We pray that all those who teach the word in any context, be it in Sunday school with our little ones or in a life group or one-to-one or here up front on a Sunday, that whoever teaches your truth would do their best to present themselves as one approved, having rightly handled the word of truth. So help us, please, to be people of truth, but also people of righteousness, of peace, of love, and of faith. And we pray it in and uh, the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. We're going to end with uh, a couple of... Uh,